Well, last week I sought to show you that the church is no stranger to volatile times. And certainly we're living in some of those right now. Upon further reflection, as I considered some of the things we walked through last week in our Ecclesia series, talking about the nature of the church, as I was reflecting more on some of those thoughts, it became clear to me that believers are uniquely suited for conflict, that believers are uniquely equipped to deal with times like this, not just that we were born into it, not just that we have a history to refer back to, commands of the Bible and how to deal with times like this, but we're uniquely given the ability to deal with these kind of times. So much so, in fact, that it can feel awkward to try to do ministry, to try to be part of kingdom building when our neighbors have been lulled to sleep by the worldly promises of peace and safety. In other words, when times seem great, When everything in the world seems like it's going well, of course, it's never going well in the whole world, but when there are people in certain microcosms, in in their little tunnel-visioned arena, think that everything is going fine, it is often harder to speak gospel truth into that. You'd say, why would a person cry out to God for salvation if he or she doesn't think that there's anything from which they need to be saved? Either their own sins the general wickedness and sinfulness of the world. In God's providence, the church was born onto a battlefield. Jesus founded his church and promised that he would build it in the midst of turmoil and in the midst of chaos. I made this claim last week, and that's what I tried to encourage you with then. I want you to remember for a moment, if you've read through the book of Matthew in the New Testament, you may be familiar with Jesus's parable about the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13. That was the parable that Jesus told that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who had his servants sow seed into his field. And after the servants did that, they went to sleep and the enemy came in and he put weeds all in the field so that later as they began to sprout up, the servants cried out to their master and they said, oh no, look, not just the good wheat is growing, but the tares, the weeds are growing as well. Do you want us just to yank those, those tares out? Want us to pull the weeds? The master says, no, lest you pull out the wheat as well. He says, let both of them grow together from now until the end of this age. And at that point, there will be a reaping. This is encouraging to us for a handful of reasons. Not least of which is that the church will advance. Jesus will succeed in his kingdom building, irrespective of how many weeds there are out there. It's going to happen. But we should also then expect to see enemies of God and of his people working tirelessly to undermine everything that the gospel claims to be true. And that's exactly what we see in the Bible. The book of Acts, which records the beginnings of Jesus' church, tells us of a time that was rife with injustice. It was a time where the people were eyeballs deep in corruption, mob rule, oppressive governments, foolish, hard-hearted people. And it was in the midst of that kind of tribulation that the church was designed to flourish, to thrive and not merely survive. And not because we feed on chaos but because we provide the only antidote. Just yesterday, um, I offered to cook dinner to make uh, food for the family, so I put together some burgers, one of my quick meals that I know how to do, tossed them on the grill outside, and as I got everything all ready, I I had logged in my mind the last couple of times that I had grilled, it's time for a deep scrub of the grill itself. That little grease trap underneath is getting pretty full, and it's been a, been a... Past yet last year and into this year, and I just hadn't quite gotten around to it yet, but I figured I'd get at least another couple of grills out of it. Well, I was wrong. I look out there after they'd been on for a little while, and just black pillows of smoke were just, just floating into the air and scorching the side of our house, brown marks on the side of the house. And it was just overwhelming. And um, I cooked the meat anyway and made my kids eat it because it's good for character building. But it literally was so, uh, so intense 
that after I had unplugged the, the propane tank and pulled it off to the side to make sure that was safe, I, I dragged the, the, the grill by the, the safe little fins on the side out to the middle of the patio so it couldn't uh, burn the side of the house. I shut everything off, and it was still burning. And so what do you do? You, you try to eliminate air, right? You just close it up. So I close it up, still burning. It was just going. And that's when I remembered how prepared I really am. And so I ran inside and grabbed one of those uh, fire extinguishers that I got on a Home Depot sale, an impulse purchase on those, 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 uh, those middle rows that they used to entice you on the way to the, the checkout aisle. One day I got a hold of a couple of them and, and I was like, I'm prepared. I ran inside, grabbed it, came outside. And no joke, I, I don't know if I've ever had to use one of those in reality before. So I, I, I like just shot it one shot, poof, all the flames gone. I was amazed. Like it was really incredible. Like I just, poof. I was a little bit disappointed, like, oh, I kind of hope to have to do that for a couple of minutes, like you see in the movies and stuff. Gone. I couldn't help but think that as I did that, like, man, th- this tool is uniquely designed for this exact purpose, that exact purpose. I didn't even have to go run and grab the hose, which I realized later was about two and a half feet from the thing. But that's exactly what that's designed for. And it quelled the fire instantaneously. Our gospel is designed to be the only instantaneous solution to the wickedness of the world. And by instantaneous, I don't mean that you preach it once and every individual person gets saved. But at the point of conversion, for the person who's ready to receive it, immediately something happens in the heart of a person. A person can go from unsaved to saved immediately upon the hearing of the gospel. More than that, the proclamation of the gospel is the tool designed to deal with the exact kind of turmoil, the exact kind of chaos that we're dealing with right now. Now, I hope that you understand this illustration does not mean to say that the gospel is less than or equal to a fire extinguisher. It's far more than that. But it is similar in that it is exactly the solution that's needed right now. And you and I are the only ones who can wield that gospel. Have you considered that before? What the world is crying out for right now? Christians are the only ones who can offer a genuine and lasting solution. I know that many Christians right now are feeling overwhelmed, worried, just anxieties about all that's happening. Who would have thought 2020 would turn into this? As rapidly as it has. And yet here we are, And I know that fear abounds for many. It's a struggle for many believers today. But it's my hope that you will be able to be excited about our times right now. That you will see that the gospel resounds at historical moments like these. And that we can and must respond to current events with great encouragement rather than fear and worry. Here's the text we're going to be in today, Acts chapter 2. Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2 if you have your Bibles with you. If you were to hear a sermon preached on the church, ecclesia, the assembly, the called out ones, called out of the world to assemble in the name of God together, it would be hard for that pastor to preach through a handful of sermons without touching on Acts chapter 2. And if you've ever read through that passage, You probably know why, because this was a significant inaugural event for the Christian church. And I'm looking forward to to preach through this today. And now, I'm not going to preach through the entire thing just because of time. I'm going to preach through half of it. And while I was preparing to preach through this half this week and the next half next week, I got a little bit concerned because I know how slow we can go through verses on occasion. And so I was was encouraged by this one thought. If Bradley can teach through the book of Romans in 45 minutes, I can do half a chapter in a Sunday sermon. So I want to go ahead and I I don't want to read all through it right now. I want to pray and ask God to be with us as we start going through. And then we're going to go through a little bit more brisk of a pace than usual because I think that the flow will actually serve us as well as the individual parts. Let's pray and then do that. Lord, we we are so grateful for your word. We are so grateful that you've given us this Bible. And we're so grateful that we have Acts chapter 2 that tells us of the very beginning of the Christian church. Father, we pray that you would use passages of Scripture, this particular one, to expose error in our thinking, to help us to focus on what is central in the gospel, to help remind us of our roots 
And Lord, more than anything, to give you great glory, worship, and praise that you are due. So Father, be with us today. Send your spirit. Send the very same Holy Spirit who worked in the lives and the hearts of the believers in this incredible day we're about to read about. Send your very same Holy Spirit that he would equip our hearts to convict us of sin, to teach us, to guide us, to encourage us, to empower us, that we may leave this place more prepared than we walked in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the setup on this particular passage. Jesus has already died and resurrected, and he's ascended into heaven. He's gathered his disciples, he's, he's taught, he's shown himself to groups of people from one, two, up to 500 people at a single time. He's instructed his disciples to gather in Jerusalem, and he's told them to wait there for the promised Holy Spirit, who he'd previously promised he would send. And it was there, while they're waiting in Jerusalem, in the upper room of a household, that they, they actually commissioned Matthias through the casting of lots to replace Judas and to accompany the other 11 disciples. But there was more than just the 11. In fact, we're going to read in chapter 1, or we would have read in chapter 1, that 120 people are gathered together. Probably many of them fearful, probably many of them concerned. Almost nobody had any idea of what was actually going to happen until it did. And that's where we pick up in chapter 2, verse 1. You can read this, read along with me. I'll start slow. If you get nervous, then I'm pausing after a verse. Don't worry. We're going to go faster as we go. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, real quick, just to make some clarifying points of what's happening right here. Pentecost was a particular holy day. It was an annual holiday. In fact, it's still on the calendars. Technically, it was last weekend, last Sunday in 2020. I was going to preach this last weekend, but current events took us in a slightly different direction. Pentecost is an annual holiday. That term comes from the Greek word for 50th, 50th, because it was celebrated the 50th day after Passover. In the Old Testament, it was referred to as the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Harvest, or the Day of First Fruits. There's different names used for this same annual festival. On that day, the Israelites were to offer a free will grain offering before the Lord barley or wheat, some kind of grain. Now, you might remember that the Old Testament story of Ruth takes place around the time of the Feast of Weeks. In fact, Ruth gleans in the field of Boaz throughout these seven weeks, those 49 days culminating in that 50th. So we do have these reminders of that barley harvest, this feast taking place back then. It was one of three days in the year that Israelites were called to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It was along with Passover and the Feast of Ingathering. It was the time in which Israelites, for wherever they were in the world, would make an effort to get to Jerusalem, to be near the temple, to be present for this holy ceremony. And so this is going to play into what's about to take place here. Uh, God chose this particular moment to be the time in which the Holy Spirit would come because there would be a lot of people packed into Jerusalem for this particular feast. And as all the first believers, those 120, were Jewish, they celebrated this Jewish holiday. Pentecost, as it comes to be known, throughout the Greek-speaking world is an annual feast, and there will be at least one more referred to in the book of Acts, and another one in 1 Corinthians. We'll see this again show up. But this one, this one is so significant that we can rightly refer to it as the singular day of Pentecost. When Christians say Pentecost, refer back to the day of Pentecost, almost always we're talking about Acts 2, this particular event, because of how significant it was. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. I'm going to ask a quick, quick question here that I think might be helpful. This is the kind of questions you should be asking yourself if you're doing just private Bible study time, just to really get to know the words of sacred scripture, what is being said, and compare that with what is not being said. Question for you, does this text tell us that they heard wind? And does this text tell us that they saw fire? You'll see this helpful. The answer is no. No, it doesn't say that, does it? 
doesn't say that that's what it was there. Notice the language. Luke is trying to explain something that cannot be explained. This is why he says it was sound like, it was like a mighty rushing wind. That's the best way he could explain it. And what, what did they see? What was it that was resting on the people? Divided tongues as of fire. It appeared to them and rested in each one of them. Here's why I say this. This is the reason I think this is actually kind of important. Heavenly, purely spiritual realities are inexplicable to human witnesses. The realities of heaven are greater than those of the material world. And so human authors, when speaking of heavenly miraculous things, strain at the limits of language to adequately describe what they have experienced. You ever tried to explain heaven to children? This is like every other night in my household. We talk about the amazing things that heaven is going to be like and how we're going to know things we couldn't possibly know here in our sinful wickedness and how all the the secrets of men will be be displayed in that time in some way, which is actually a pretty big deal because my five-year-old, little Naomi, uh, she's just told us recently that she has a Googleplex of secrets. So I think it's going to take a while to walk through all those. The, the, The heavenly things we can't adequately explain with human language. We can't do it. And so this is why all throughout the Bible, whenever there's references to visions of heaven, it's, it's like a sea of glass. It's not, not glass, but it's like glass. It's like the brightness of the sun or like fire. They don't know how to talk about it. They're trying hard to make it clear to the audience. The event here was previously foretold by John the Baptist and, of course, by Jesus. In Matthew 3, Verse 11, John the Baptist says this. He's, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Almost certainly talking about this event, at least in part. Jesus promises in chapter 14, 15, and 16 of the gospel according to John that he will send the Holy Spirit There was a way in which the Spirit empowered the apostles, those 12 who did these mighty works and wonders during the days of Jesus' ministry, but they were not yet fully indwelled by the Holy Spirit in the way that that will come to pass here on the day of Pentecost. So let there be no mistake. The promised Holy Spirit who was to come has supernaturally descended upon these believers, empowered and equipped them for what's about to happen. And this is what's about to happen. Verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. Did I miss a verse? Oh, number, yeah, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We're going to come back to what's going on there in just a moment. But the Holy Spirit equips these people for a particular task, to speak in such a way that the people are about to hear in their own language. We'll, we'll come back to that in just a minute. Now, they were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. Devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Okay. So you're picturing it? You're picturing the scene. 120 of these disciples come flooding out of the household into the streets. And they are proclaiming the same gospel to people in all of these various languages. There are people from more than a dozen different unique geographical regions and languages being, being named here. And all these people are hearing this gospel totally literate. They're totally able to understand. It's intelligible to them what's coming out of the mouths of these Galileans. They heard the sound of something, like rushing wind. Maybe they heard the sound of the preaching and they they came running to see what was happening. And they each heard the disciples preaching the gospel, as it says here, in his own language. Now, admittedly, it's a little bit hard to tell exactly where this miracle is occurring, precisely. Is the miracle in the speaking of the disciples? 
It sounded like that in, in, chapter, in verse 4 here, that the miracle was the tongues coming out was in a different language. Or is it in the hearing of the crowd? The fact that Peter speaks singularly to everyone and they all understand makes it maybe, maybe the crowd is where the miracle is taking place. Do you get what I'm saying? It could either be in the ears of the hearers or in the voice of the speaker. I think either of those could be possible in this situation. But whichever it is, the Holy Spirit is doing something that could not have happened apart from supernatural work. And that's the point. Tongues is what's being spoken here. Now, quick here. There has been much speculation on what tongues is in the New Testament, that spiritual gift. And the most common battleground for that debate is in 1 Corinthians. And we may deal with that in upcoming weeks if the Lord permits. But for here... Let me, let me give you just my definition of, of tongues right here as I've written this out. Hopefully this will be helpful for you and sufficient for this passage. In the New Testament, tongues was a supernatural gift whereby a believer was given the ability to speak or be heard in a language unknown to him or herself. It was not granted to all believers but only to some and was to be voluntarily exercised for the good of the church. I'll say that one more time. In the New Testament, tongues was a supernatural gift whereby a believer was given the ability to speak or to be heard in a language unknown to him or herself. It was not granted to all believers, but only to some, and was to be voluntarily exercised for the good of the church. Much more could be said about tongues, admittedly, but I think this is a sufficient definition for this passage. But a question you might want to ask is, why does this happen? Why does God work it in this way? Now, it is true that many have made correlation between this and the Tower of Babel, where God divided the human race by the multiplying of languages. And here is a time in which, after Jesus' ascension, he is bringing them back together and he's uniting them together in some singular gospel unity. I think there's great images of beautiful things happening there. But you might ask, why would that be the way that God chooses to do this? Let me give you two quick answers to that. First, it was prophesied that it would happen this way. We're about to see that in just a moment here. But that only answers half of the question. The fact that, she, that God prophesied that it would come to pass and then it came to pass. You can still ask the obvious question, why was it prophesied? Like, why was that the plan that was foretold? So my second response to that question would be that God gave his miraculous stamp of approval on what was being preached in this all-important moment. There are so many skeptics today that say that Christianity is just a sham. There is a variety of atheistic theories on how it actually started. Some would argue that it was started by ignorant people or bold charlatans just lying about things. But God ordained that the way that it would begin, the way that his church would launch into the world, would not be by merely a single preacher who had great charisma and could command a crowd. It was started by a group of disciples, each of whom was miraculously equipped to speak in different languages in order to get the attention of the people. There's no comparison to this. There's no comparison to this kind of thing. Speaking in tongues will happen two more times in the book of Acts, in chapter 10 and chapter 19. And when these things happen, there's great significance to it, but it's always a stamp of approval. So the people watching would have to go, something amazing is happening here. This can't be contrived. Something distinct Something miraculous is taking place. It does say here that some people assumed that they were drunk. Not, of course, because they were acting inebriated, but because there was no logical explanation for what was happening. That's the problem here. But for the cynic who says, well, maybe those 120 people just included those who could speak different languages. How hard is that to imagine? They just were, they were, they've been holed up in Jerusalem preparing their language studies so they could go do this big charade. That betrays what the text says here. Because the crowd knew that there was something going on that could not be deduced by mere materialistic reason. That's why it says all were amazed and perplexed. Have you ever met someone who could speak another language? Were you really amazed? 
Were you perplexed? How do they do it? Especially not in a kind of age and a place where people would have had to know multiple languages. Most of these Jews were likely multilingual, maybe at least bi or even trilingual. If they understood Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, they probably had an understanding of those, at least could get by. If you were to go to Israel today, there's three dominant languages that are being spoken. All the signs, you'll see three languages at each sign. It's not incredibly perplexing in and of itself for a person to do this. The people knew something significant was taking place. Something that could be not explained by mere rational means. If you and I were to walk by this event taking place, we would not have said, oh, that's, that's kind of normal. We would have noted something amazing. Peter then steps up to answer this charge. He's the one who represents the people. And this will become the first sermon preached by a disciple of Jesus in the Christian church. I'm going to read the first couple of verses of that. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So Peter here stands as the representative speaker on behalf of the other disciples amongst the other 11. And a considerable amount of focus will remain on him and his ministry up until we see kind of a trade-off in the book of Acts where, where the, the focus, the center stage goes to the apostle Paul in taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter will, will have a chief role up until about halfway through the book. He represents these people speaking. And he offers this incredible sermon. He's about to draw upon the Old Testament in his defense here. In fact, that's why he says, I'm about to tell you something that was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, we might see a little bit of humor here in that he's saying, these people aren't drunk. My goodness, it's too early. If they're going to get drunk, they'd at least wait till later in the day. He's telling these people that there's a reason what is taking place is actually going down. And he quotes from the Old Testament scripture to give the answer. Now, but before I get into what he's about to quote, I just want you to imagine for a moment the significance of the fact that this apostle, who is filled with the Holy Spirit of God, in this miraculous event, is speaking on behalf of the other 119 people who are preaching the good news of Jesus Christ in various languages that they didn't previously know. And yet, even in this moment, he does not merely draw upon his own authority, but on the authority of the Scripture itself. If we didn't have any examples in the New Testament of people quoting the scripture in sermons, I suspect we would probably still do it. But when we see places like this, we are further encouraged to preach expositional sermons. That means sermons that draw from a text and explain that text, that make the, the point of the text the point of the sermon. We are a Bible people. Even the apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking in words that will become Scripture, exposit Scripture. This is so significant. Because everything that you and I can know to be true about God, we know because of words. Words. Words matter. This is why, this is why I paused a moment ago when I said, did it say that there was wind? No, it didn't say that. Words matter. It said there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. That's important for us. Most of the sermons in the book of Acts are going to consist of about four main elements. This is, this is pretty true, especially to the sermons that are preached to the Jews in the book of Acts. The four elements are first, the Old Testament scripture proofs that foretell of a coming Messiah. The point, look at the Old Testament, tells us of a coming Messiah. That's the first thing. The second, they, the, the sermons tell of the life and ministry of Jesus. Third, they tell of his death and resurrection. And fourth, there's a call to repentance. So it's built upon the Old Testament scriptures. It tells of the life of Jesus, his death and his resurrection. And then it calls people to repent in light of those things. And so Peter is going to do the same right here in this particular sermon. And he begins by drawing... And the prophet Joel. He says this. 
And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. He's going to cite one more, one more sentence. I'll, I'll hit that in a second in verse 21. But the people are wanting to know why is this happening or how is this happening And Peter gives an answer by quoting this passage. And his answer is, this was foretold. That's why, that's how this is happening, because God told you this was going to happen. He says, in the last days it shall be. The last days. That term refers to the age of the Messiah, the church age, the kingdom building age, the final era of history. Joel's prophecy tells us that these last days will be marked by various signs. Just look at, look at the, what the text says here, these various signs. First is repentance. Now, that's not seen quite evidently in the exact part he quotes here, but that's in chapter 1 of Joel that's leading up to chapter 2. The people are going to turn. They're, they've been wicked. They've run away from God. There's going to be a turning of a repentance from their sins and a turning in faith to their one true God again. And in light of, as a result of their repentance, all the rest of this is going to take place. Anyone familiar with the Old Testament in the hearing of this speaking, this preaching, would be reminded that Joel was a a call to repentance and a, and a, a prophecy that it would certainly happen. So we see repentance will lead to the pouring out of God's Spirit. And that will be evidenced by this whole list of things. The sons and daughters prophesying, even the male and female servants, the, the, the dreams and the visions that will be observed by the people of God, by all flesh experiencing these things. And then it says that this, this age, this period of time, in this period of time, before the finality of it, God will do many mighty wonders in the heavens above and the earth below. Do you see the language that he uses there? Wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire, vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. So this period of history is bookended by two significant events. First, a large-scale turning and repenting of people and turning in faith to God, and it will end with the day of the Lord, final judgment. And so he's pointing to Joel saying, what you are seeing right now, this is from the Old Testament prophets. They've been telling us these last days or what you're living in now. You just experienced something that shows you that this is it. Welcome to the last days. You're in that era. You're in that age now. Over the course of the last couple of months, I've had lots of Christian brothers and sisters here in uh, in different parts of the country through different uh, avenues, texting and calling and even uh, Facebook kind of questions. Rich, do do you think that the, the events of 2020 are signs that we're in the last days? Absolutely yes. Absolutely, unquestionably, the things that you're observing right now are signs of the last days, that we are living in the last days. There's a more pointed question that might give greater clarity. Do these events, and the fact that I just said that they do show we're in the last days, does that mean that it will happen very soon, that we're at the end of that period? No, not necessarily. I don't think that at all. Personally, I suspect we're a long ways out from the final one. I think it's going to be way more dramatic by the time we get there. Happy to be wrong and go home tomorrow. But yes, these events are signs that we're in the last days. Absolutely. The whole New Testament refers to the time from the start of the church until Jesus' return as the last days, that final age. In fact, the New Testament uses the terms two ages. It refers to two ages. This present one, the one that we're living in now in the church age, and the final one. 
this age and the age to come. And Jesus, what does Jesus promise about this age? Surely I'll be with you to the very end of this age. That's what we're experiencing right now. And more pointedly, the reason that he draws on this particular one, why the Holy Spirit draws this one out of his memory, is because this group of disciples are exhibiting a miracle of the Holy Spirit's outpouring on them. They are prophesying in the proclamation of God's word. That's why it says all flesh. God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. You catching what's being said here? Joel, hundreds of years previous, is saying, in those days up there, after this repentance, in those days, people are going to have the Spirit of God poured out on them. And that's what Peter is saying is they're experiencing right now. Later, we're actually going to see some more instructions on what prophesying is and what it means and how we're supposed to, to think about dreams and visions. We'll see more help on that in the New Testament as we continue reading, especially in places like 1 Corinthians, which gives tons of good instruction to the Christian church. But back in the Old Testament, God worked through singular individual people over the course of history. There was a greatly limited outpouring of his spirit on individual people. We've talked about this many times before. But God had a limited pouring of his spirit onto people in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it is no longer, well, if you want the spirit-filled guy, go find Moses. If you want a spirit-filled guy, go find David. He's the one who's got the spirit in him today. There may be a few other prophet types out there. There Maybe a few other people, men of God, sometimes they're called in the Old Testament. You can go to one of them if you're looking for someone who has the spirit of God. But in these last days, he pours out his spirit on all flesh. That is, all believers, it's even made clear, sons and daughters. It's not talking about every human being that lives. In fact, the whole point is the Holy Spirit goes on to the believers as a guarantee for salvation that convicts of sin, draws people to God. Don't do that. Nothing's... What's he going to say next? This is the clearest indicator to me. This all flesh, sons and daughters, servants. This is the clearest indicator that it's all 120 who are prophesying. Here's why I'm saying that. Because some have said, like, well, no, 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 it's just the 12. It's just the 12. Peter and the 11, he's, they're the ones who are speaking. All the others are sitting there kind of backing them up. I don't think that's the case because that would undermine the text he's pointing to. He's not drawing on a text in the Old Testament. Hey, a certain select group of believers are going to do this. He's saying all people. You want to know why that woman over there is prophesying right now? Do you want to know why that? Oh, no. Do you want to know why that servant over there is able to to preach in a language he never even learned? Why? Because this said it was going to happen. That's why. It's amazing. Verse 21, then is Peter's culmination to this part, to this part of the sermon. We're going to end our our, our time in verse 21 today, and we'll get into the rest next week. Let's just read verse 21. He is still citing Joel chapter 2, and this is what he says in that citation. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is how you get saved. You cry out to Jesus for salvation. Acts 4.12, he'll say, literally, two chapters later, he'll say, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You cry out to Jesus for salvation. And how many people who cry out to Jesus for salvation will be saved? Everyone. All of them. And what will happen? We'll have the Spirit of God poured out on them, that they may prophesy, dream dreams, see visions, these kind of things. Paul quotes this exact same verse from Joel 2. He does this in Romans chapter 10, and he takes it to its logical and God-designed conclusion. I want to read to you Romans 10, 11 through 14, where he cites the exact same verse. Look what he says about it. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. 
and this is the citation, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He even highlights Jew and Greek. If you know anything about the New Testament, if you've been at all familiar with that terminology, they thought of people as two basic ethnic groups. You're either Jew or everyone else. And they saw a significant distinction, in large part because that's how God set it up in the Old Testament, that they would think of themselves as set apart, as holy. And in the New Testament, there's this uniting of these ethnicities for everyone, everyone. No distinction between Jew and Greek. Anyone calls out, calls on him. In the name of the Lord, they will be saved. But this is what he continues on in verse 14 of that same passage. How then will they call on him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Let me read that again, because I might have messed it up. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? That's the word. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You see how obvious this is for Paul? He's like, if everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, then everyone needs to hear that they should call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And that motivates the greatest missionary of all time, not only to do it himself, but to encourage us to do it as well. Now, I, I want to try to land here, see if I can do this quickly. And here, here's, here's my hope. I want to offer a special encouragement for you today from what we've already read, Okay? And I want you to think about how it aligns to right now in our current world events, okay? The first is this. Preaching, proclamation of the gospel is the God-designed way that we will spread the gospel and build his kingdom. This is the way. This is the way that the gospel is going to go out, by people preaching and proclaiming God's gospel to the world. That's how it happens. And it is every Christian. This is given to every believer to, in some measure, be a part of gospel proclamation. That is men and women, old and young, servants, masters, You'll notice that the text doesn't erase distinction. It doesn't go, there's no such thing. You don't even need to think about distinctions. No, no matter what the person is, if they're in Christ, they're going to be part of this effort. They're going to be doing these things. This is the plan. It's what marks this age for the believer. Our master plan is that we proclaim the truth, that we preach the gospel to all people. That's the first thing to encourage you. First thing is that what was the plan back in Acts 2 is still the plan today. Well, what about times of tribulation and, and turmoil? Yes, ex exactly. Right now is the time to proclaim and preach salvation in Jesus alone. Second, be, be encouraged by this. The Christian faith and the gospel message is decidedly supernatural. The Christian faith is decidedly supernatural. You know this, but let me press for a moment to encourage you in something. I don't mean just the speaking in tongues part of this. Yes, that's certainly a part of this as well. But even just more than that, by the time we get to Peter prophesying, him preaching this right now, what does he do? The first thing he does is he points to prophecy. What was said in the days of old will certainly come to pass. That's supernatural. He's not saying Joel was pretty good at understanding what the future could look like. Joel preached what God told him to preach because those events would certainly come to pass. He points to prophecy. He used the Bible. For the record, he used the Old Testament. Second, he tells of spirit-inspired gifts. He tells of spirit-inspired things. God's going to show up in this way. The Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. That's supernatural, folks. That's, that's not the kind of thing you try to just explain away. Well, Christians are just nicer than other people, so there's a practical reason. No! They have the Spirit of God in them. Supernatural. And what else does he talk about here? Final judgment. Final judgment. Not if you don't recycle, the world will burn up, but God's going to burn this world up, and you're going with it unless you repent and turn in faith. Guys, in a day with charts and graphs and facts abounding, that word we say loosely these days, we preach a gospel that is decidedly supernatural. He found it amusing that the more facts, charts, graphs, diagrams, 
infographics that are out there regarding current events, the more confused everyone seems to be, do those seem to clear everything? Oh, well, well there we go. There's the, there's the survey. Now we know. No, that makes it worse for people. And everyone's appealing to graphs and charts because they're trying to ground things in material fact, provable truths that are grounded in material science. But our hope is not in something material. As though with enough organization, we could defeat racism and other forms of injustice. The early church was led by men and women who boldly proclaimed a supernatural gospel. Your only way out of this is by God. You know, there are people today who are losing their trust in men. Amen to that. Yes, lose your trust in mankind. They are looking for solutions that transcend this world. I believe that there are people today who are going to be crying out for a solution that's not here. Not what they've been looking at all their lives. And we proclaim a supernatural answer. We don't just come with like, well, there's a lot of social benefits if you become a Christian. Because if you do that, here's the chart that shows how happy you'll be. Here's all the, here's all the ways society improves. That's not what we do. We point to the Bible. It's true. And God's going to send his spirit on you that you can believe. And God is going to work in you in a way that it couldn't happen unless he did it. And by that alone, are you going to be found at peace with God at final judgment? Nothing other than the gospel can truly reconcile. That's the last point I want to make today. Nothing other than the gospel can truly reconcile. Nothing. Nothing. But consider this. You know what reconciliation is, just to make sure that's really clear? Reconciliation is the restoring of peace or the restoring of harmony between two parties. That's what reconciliation is. The restoring of peace and harmony. First and foremost, every man, woman, and child must be reconciled to God. The rest of this sermon, we didn't get to it today, but the rest of Peter's sermon here is going to be all about that. We're going to get all into this. But it is primary that a person would be reconciled to God because if you don't have this, you can't dwell with God in heaven. That is your biggest problem, your sin that keeps you separated from God for forever. I'm going to read to you 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's what we're to do, to implore people to be reconciled, first and foremost, to God. If you were reconciled in some way, if it was possible for you to have reconciliation with every other person in your life and not to God, none of that would matter. If you don't have God, you don't have peace. Now or eternally. But secondly, true reconciliation between people can only be found in the gospel. That's why this passage said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's everyone, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their language they speak, obviously regardless of their language, regardless of where they're from, male, female, young, old, uh, master, slave, regardless of any of that. Every attempt at racial reconciliation apart from the gospel will fail. No matter what they come up with, it will not succeed. It won't. Inevitably, it will crumble. Do you think that laws can make people love one another? The world is always looking for utopia, and some honestly think that they can achieve it. But we know that there is no ultimate peace apart from God. At best, that peace will be tenuous, fragile, incomplete, and very temporary. Lastly, I want to point you to Revelation 7, 9 through 10. It's hard to not cite this every time we bring up the topic of race, ethnicities. This is the image in heaven. John says this, After this I looked, 
and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's reconciliation. That's perfect peace and unity. They cry out with a singular A voice. People from all of these languages, tribes, nations, they cry out singularly in praise to God. That is only true and real, that reconciliation. You and I were made for times like these. We were designed for it as believers. Let us not shrink back from conflict that's out there. And let us not try to engage with all the right twists of our minds and our, our, good, our facts and we know exactly where to find the good charts and the good graphs. No, we come with the Bible and the gospel proclamation. That's what we have to offer. And guess what? Those in your life who God is working on their hearts and softening, softening them, preparing them, they're craving that. They don't want the rest. They want the gospel. And my hope is that we walk out of here more excited, like eager, not willing to let the fears and the concerns and the anxieties hold us back from this incredible time. We get to live right now. And we are more suited, more prepared for this time than any other group of Christians in the history of the world. Did you know that? No one's more suited for it than we are. And let us not shrink back, but be the ambassadors, the ministers of reconciliation to the people. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would let us boldly proclaim the truth in the face of fears. Father, I pray that we would overcome anxieties and worry. I pray that we would be able to operate as though we were fearless because you, oh God, are the only one that we ought to fear. Lord, there's so many crazy things going in the world right now, but it's not that hard to see. Sin is the problem and your son is our solution. Father, let us proclaim repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Let us proclaim a giving up of the things of the world and a loving you most. Lord, I have to believe that there are so many out there right now who have tried all the worldly methods for success and solving these big, genuine problems and failed over and over again and are now looking at something that will transcend all of the other attempted solutions. Lord, let us be quick to offer what that solution is. Help us unite around the gospel and be excited for these times and not fearful. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.